Well, welcome to Men's Roundtable and to Band of Brothers. If you are um, new to that series, you shouldn't be. This is amazing. And by the time you get to the end, when they have the original guys commenting on uh, what they saw and what happened, so interesting that their families did not know what they had been through. And a lot of their families, um, children and grandchildren, found out what their dads, grandfathers did um, in the war through the, through the series that was put out. And um, it was kind of an amazing thing. And, you know, you would think in their situation, the only option is, is let's just hang right here. We're not getting into Foy today. Maybe if the Germans decide to leave, we could get into Foy tomorrow, but we're not getting in today. And you hear that phrase over and over, keep moving. Keep moving. You cannot sit there. If you sit there, you have no future. We have to keep moving. And that is a complicated thing. I'm trying to put myself in that situation and think, what in the world would get me to keep moving? But there is a truth in that for us as we talk about what it means um, to embrace masculinity, what it means to become a man. Because the truth is, most of us have big questions around what it means to be a man. What does it mean to, for me to live out masculinity, masculinity in a way that honors God? Most of us are stalled in major areas of life. And we need to challenge that. We need to think through that. We need um, a grid that we can work through. We need a definition that we can work through that helps us come to a place where we think through and know how do we move forward as, as a man? What does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to live that out? I see lots of confusion around masculinity. If you ask a group of men, give me a definition of masculinity, most of them will not even try to answer the question. Um, there's just a lack of confidence to be able to even say, here's a plausible answer. I see lots of hiding. I see lostness. I see a disengagement. I see men who are overwhelmed. I see men who are distracted because the definition does not come easy, easily and how to live that out does not come very easily either. I see toxic versions of masculinity where you see this kind of authoritarian idea. It's kind of the world that I was raised in. That was very normal to me, an authoritarian center that kind of rules over, and that's what being a man was. Um, I see a very feminized version of masculinity where we've merged male and female into one, and female comes out the winner, and so we all need to act more like women. If I want to know how to be successful as a man, I need to become more like a woman. We see a version of that in our culture and in our church. And we see mostly just a shallow version of masculinity that just says, I work on cars, I like to hunt, I like to fish, I cuss a little, I might chew some tobacco. I'm a man. Right? That feels very comfortable for us. And so that's a shallow version of masculinity that's honestly not very durable. What I'm wondering is, is there an authentic version of masculinity that is strong and compassionate and gritty all at the same time. That's what I'm wondering. So I hope we find that over the next few weeks as we learn how to move together, learn how to take responsibility. And we're not going to just be at a theoretical definition level. Uh, we're going to work down into some practical things and talk about what are some action steps that we can take. I mean, I remember when I was a college student, I was thinking about this issue and didn't really know that's what I was thinking about. I mean, when you're little, I'm like, when I get to be 14, 
I'll obviously be a man. When I get to be 16, I'll be a man. When I get to be 18, I'll be a man. And one night, um, I, was, I was served as a, in a leadership role with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I was a junior. I was a vice president of, this, of FCA. And we had another vice president named Steve Dobson. It was on this side. And um, Steve said to me, he goes, he was a big hiker, backpacker. He goes, hey, let's go backpacking. I was like, I'd love to. He goes, just the two of us, we'll get to know each other. We didn't know each other well. And um, I was like, yeah, that'll be, that's, that's what men do. That'll be, a, that'll be great, like man. He goes, yeah, sure. And then uh, a week later, he goes, hey, what's a good time? We started finding a good time. And, and he pitched the idea again. I was like, yeah. And um, I said, uh, man, this would be great. It's going to be like two men out there. And then we, a couple weeks later, we're driving up into Pisgah in the car. And I said something about being a man again. He goes, every time we talk about going camping, you keep talking about being a man. And I was like, yeah, I have said that. And he goes, I don't think this has anything to do with being a man. He goes, I don't really know what that is. He said, but I don't think, I think this is just camping. <laughs> right? And so I said, okay, sure does feel like being a man though, because it's cold. I don't know how I coordinated all that and how I coalesced all that in my brain. So we're going to talk about that big picture. So turn to Genesis 2 and let's discuss. And not only are we going to talk about the big picture, by the time we get to the end, we're going to deal with some real practical things of how you engage the women in your life, your family, your workplace, how you deal with your soul, how you deal with ministry. It'll be this upper level definition, but also a real practical grid of how we think through things. So let's, um, let's look together in Genesis 2 and let's start in the beginning, literally, with one of our, some of our very first moments as a people. This is kind of ground zero uh, for men and women, our origin. So you have in Genesis 1, God creates male and female. In the image of God, he created them. They have equal value, yet there are unique things about each gender. And then in chapter 2, man exists. Woman, he starts the story over with a more micro. The first chapter is a macro of here's how everything went. The second chapter starts all over again with the creation story, retelling it in a, with a different flavor and a different emphasis. In verse 15, the Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So woman has not been created yet, just the man. And he gives him, what, a physical job. He is um, watching over the garden. He is managing it. He's going to tend to it. He's gonna, it is not yet fruitful. And the requirement on man is that he will make it fruitful. He's going to take something that's not bad, it's good. It is just in a very plain sense in its existence. So he is going to take something that is not fruitful, cultivate it, tend it, and make it fruitful. And he's all alone in the world. There's no woman yet. But the Lord God warned him, you may eat freely of the fruit of every tree, except, verse 17, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So there's this physical piece about taking care of the garden. And then there is the spiritual component that is all new, right? There's this physical piece, take care of it. And then there's this spiritual component of you can eat of this, don't eat of this. If you eat of this, you'll die. So there's a lot going on here. He has work to do. He's been given some responsibility. He's been given direction. And once again, who's not been created? The woman. He is alone in this world. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. He gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the sky and all the animals. But still there was no, the word is azare. 
There is no one who brings strength who comes alongside him. Just like he's coming alongside, he's investing in, he's tending to, he's doing that alone. There's no one to bring strength to him into the world that he's working on. He has no partner. He has no one who's the same yet the opposite. He doesn't have that yet. She is the same yet she is different. Verse three, chapter three, verse one. She gets created. They get married at the end of two. Then in verse three, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? She says in verse two, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it or you will die. Is that what God said? That is not what God said. So God said, don't eat it. He didn't say don't touch it. Is that a big point? I have no idea, right? It's just a discrepancy. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if um, Adam just made that up and he's like, hey, hon, here's the thing. Back before you were created, God said, don't eat, don't eat from that tree. We can eat from all these other trees. We cannot eat of that tree. And I'll tell you what, here's an idea. Since um, we can't eat of it, just don't even touch it. Just to stay away from it. Maybe it's a fence, what we call a fence law. To just stay one step removed. We don't know that. Or maybe he said, hey, we can't eat it. Um, we can play baseball with it, but we can't eat it. We can throw with it in the afternoons. But just don't eat it. And then maybe she added the rule. We don't know if Adam added the rule, if she added the rule. We don't know if there's any significance to it. The significance might be that we have some independent thinking. That we are not entirely, exactly quoting what God said. We are now adding to or taking away. In this situation, we're adding to what God said rather than just saying, no, this is exactly what he said. So we have this woman who was not created in the beginning when he started taking responsibility. God creates her. It's great. They become one flesh. They come together. We don't know how much time transpires. Then we see the serpent who is apparently the leader of the animal kingdom engaging her. He can talk. It's amazing. They're having a great conversation. And then he turns it to this. He is very wise. He's a ruler among the animal worlds, what it seems and so he begins to challenge her on this. And so far, it seems that she's doing pretty good. It's like, hey, can't, you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden. She's like, how do you think I'm living if we can't eat from that? We can't eat just that one we cannot eat from. She goes, God says we'll die. Verse 4. Servant challenges that. He says, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Is that a true statement? It actually, this work is complicated. That actually is a true statement. It's not true in the sense that she thinks it's true, but it is a true statement. Right now, there is this disparity between where God is and where they are on understanding what evil is. And that will always be the case. But God does understand evil in a way that they do not. They're innocent to it which turns out to be a good thing to not know what evil is. It turns out to be a good thing to not fully understand what it means to lose your innocence, to have experienced sin, to experience the shame and the guilt of sin, to um, have maintained your innocence 
though you're ignorant of something, being innocent of it is a good thing. So when he goes, God knows, you start eating that fruit, then you're going to be just like him. There's a sense, that's the big problem with this kind of temptation and with real temptation is there's a certain amount of truth in it. He goes, he knows you won't die. You'll be like God. And they will be like God. She will be like God. She will understand then what it's like. This is the nature of deception. To be told that what you have is not enough. And that you can get more. And the more that you see is good for you. And that God is probably keeping something from you that you would really want that would be good for you. And if you'll step across that line, it'll be a good thing, not a bad thing. And there's always a sense in which that's true. That if you step across that line, will that feel good? Yeah, that actually will feel good for a moment. If you step across that line, will that bring comfort? Yeah, that actually will bring comfort for a minute. Yes, that will be like an adventure. That would be ex an exciting thing to have to carry that on for a season. So there's some truth in it in the sense that you don't know what God thinks about evil. You don't totally understand it. When you eat this fruit, you, then you will know what evil is. Then you will know what good and bad is. And so it is somewhat true, but it's a huge deception because once she comes to know what evil is, then her soul will be darkened. And she will feel the shame. And she will have the suffering that comes with it. And the suffering is never equal to the pleasure that you get in that moment. Verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. That its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. She was deceived. And we know from Revelation that uh, this is the great serpent of old, Satan. And we know from 1 Timothy that she is not just deceived, she is utterly deceived. Is that she really is drawn into a deep, dark place where all of this makes sense to her. Where that she really thinks she's going to ascend and be like the Most High. She thinks that this is her ticket out to something better. She really does get drawn in. Because then, this is the this is kind of the, the point for us right here. This is, the, this is the pen that gets dropped in. Then she gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. It's hard to see that one coming. The author doesn't really clue you in. In chapter 1, it's that creation story all together. Chapter 2, it's all about him. And then at the end, they get, she gets created. They get married, one flesh, very romantic, very sweet. We've got to... Quote that at every wedding, rehearsal dinner going forward about there could be one. Right, got that. It's awesome. I skipped that part. Chapter three, we got this brilliant animal talking to this woman. And it's a very interesting dialogue. It's a very interesting progression downward. And my thought is when we're reading in that early part of chapter three, the man is out working Someone has got to be driving the John Deere at this point. Someone has got to be getting stuff done, right? It's just I had this basic assumption that he is working somewhere. He's fixing a fence. Just there's something important that he's doing. So when you get to this point, she's eating, and you're like, man, women, they're so easily deceived. Gosh, what are you going to do? That's the problem around here. 
these women. And then you read this. Then she gave some to her husband. Why? Because he was with her. And this whole time, he's not talked. He's not had anything to say. We assume she was alone. We assume she was engaging. The snake had engaged her. And she's kind of a victim in the situation because she didn't have all the information that he has. And she wasn't there in the very beginning when God spoke to him. And so she's, she's Johnny come lately. She got into the game late. She doesn't really know what, what was said in the beginning. And so maybe she got confused. And so she's on her own having to try to figure it out. But then as it turns out, that dude is standing right there with her. He watches the whole thing unfold. As soon as the snake starts talking, he goes, hey, you know you can't eat from any of these trees? And the man was like, let's just see how this goes. Like you would love to know what's he thinking. And then she's like, no, man, from, we can eat from all these trees. Just that one in the middle of the garden can't eat that. He's like, oh, yeah, that, that's God. He's trying to keep stuff from you. And the man's like. And when God says to the man, Originally, you eat from it, you'll die. Has he told the woman that? Whether he has or whether he hasn't. In this moment, he has heard that. So what's he thinking? When Satan goes, surely you will not die. And the man goes, what's he? He said, hey, hey, no, 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 no. I was here. I heard it straight from him. He said, we would die. He said, we would die. But he doesn't say any of that. He watches her say things that aren't true. He watches the serpents say things that are not true, and he remains silent. It is the silence of Adam that rules the day here. And so she gave to her husband who was with her. He is present. Now write this down. He is present and absent at the same time. That's what this man is. He is present Physically, and he is absent at the exact same time. This is the moment where he should step forward and offer something. And instead, he steps back and leaves a void. He should step in and fill the void. But he steps back to see what happens. He's going to let it play out. Why is he going to let it play out? I keep asking the why question. That's not in here. <laughs> I've looked. There's no answer to that. Why do I do that? That's probably the answer. Whatever all the reasons are that I step back and leave a void, it's probably the same reasons he steps back to leave a void. He steps back. He leaves a void. She steps in. She fills the void. He is what we call in this moment, keyword, passive. He is a passive man as he steps back, as he disengages. It is a form of independence. And if 1 Timothy says the woman is deceived, she is utterly deceived, then Romans 5 says the man is responsible for us for casting humanity into sin. So if she's deceived, victimized in the situation, he is not. He is responsible for humanity falling headlong into sin. That is the role that he plays. That is the mantle that is given to him. He now takes on that, that moniker. He is now that person who has cast us into sin by, by stepping back and allowing this to unfold because he eats it too. He makes that decision. Now, this is an interesting corollary and a little bit of a contrast in verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were open. 
They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. If his passivity is a form of independence from God, where he doesn't step in and follow God and obey and listen and carry out the instructions he was given and take on that responsibility and move forward, step into the situation, um, this is another form of independence. Their eyes were open. They suddenly felt, so this is where Satan was right. You are going to know about it. Their eyes were open. They felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Here is what we call this independence manifested in what we would call he becomes self-reliant. He feels the gap. He feels the shame, the nakedness, and he decides to cover it on his own. Because I tell you what we'll do. We feel all exposed right now. That's what shame is. It's the idea of being exposed. Let's grab some of these leaves and we'll cover up our nakedness and then we won't feel this way anymore. That will help us feel better about this situation. It's a form of humanism where I, where I decide what's right. I decide what's wrong based on me, what I think. And then I take the actions that I think are appropriate to solve my situation to solve my problem, to cover my own sin. And it doesn't, it's not enough. Like these fig leaves are not going to repair the damage that was done. It's not going to be good enough. So in one sense, he steps back and is silent. He's passive. In the next moment, he steps forward in the wrong way and takes initiative that's not his to take. He's trying to cover sin. He doesn't have the ability to cover sin. How would you ever arrive at the idea that leaves will cover sin? In the day you eat of the tree, you will die. It is a spiritual reality, and there's nothing physical in your world that is going to take care of that spiritual reality. You do not have the tools or the resources spiritually to deal with your deepest problems. You need a spiritual being to deal with your spiritual problems. And bro, he misses that. And so we, we think in terms of this, um, on this spectrum, both chat verses six, verse six and verse seven. In verse six, we see this passivity as he steps back, which is independence. Let's be clear on that. Both of these are independence. And in verse 7, we see a self-reliance that is also independence. And here's what we are. In some situations, I'm verse 6. And in some situations, I'm verse... If you see me in a certain situation where I'm verse 7, you're like, oh, this guy's not passive at all. Very self-reliant. But then there's other situations where I'm very passive. So we all got it. We all got it on both sides. Right? Because this is our grandfather. We follow after him. We have uh, some of his nature in us. Then in verse 9, And then the Lord God called to the man. He goes, Where are you? The man says, I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid and covered up because I was naked. So I hid from you. So notice the massive amounts of failure. When... This idea of being independent. When the snake went to another level in the argument with the woman, and he saw that the woman was on the ropes, even though, let's say, he felt overmatched in the moment, what should he have done? The truth is, I don't really, really know. 
but it seems logical to say, you just got to put your hands up and be like, hey, I need both of y'all to stop talking. Woman, don't, please don't get your feelings hurt, but I don't know what he called her. Woman, woman, <laughs> ish, you're ish, I'm, I'm ish, you're isha. I guess, woman, because you come out of man, just stop, stop talking. And to you, snake, I need you to stop talking. No, snake keeps talking, you just punch him in the face. Whatever. You just got to get everybody to stop talking. God, here's the thing. I need you to come here right now because in the beginning you told me not to eat that. And now this thing is headed down the wrong road and I can't figure out what to do. I can't figure out what to tell her. I can't figure out what to tell her. I am overmatched in this situation. That would have been a form of dependence. Is that the right thing? I don't know. But that, that calling out would have been a form of dependence. Stepping in and telling everybody to be quiet would have been a form of dependence. Hey, God, don't come till 4 o'clock this afternoon. I need y'all to put this on hold till 4 o'clock this afternoon. His train comes in, and then we can all talk about this. Because I don't know where this is going. That would have been a form of dependence. And then here, we've now sinned. Then he could have said, hey, God, I don't know if you've been watching, but the guy in the big conversation, I completely failed. I I did not step in like I was supposed to. And now here we are, full of shame, full of nakedness. I'm running from her. We're running from you. Can you come and help us figure out now what we're supposed to do? Because now we are completely exposed, full of shame. What should we do? That would also be a form of dependence. So in either situation where he showed independence, even after the failure, he could still show dependence by calling God into the situation, by getting God involved in it. But he goes, where are you? Verse 10, heard you walking in the garden. Instead of calling out on you, I hid from you again. And the fact is, Adam becomes a hider. The woman becomes a hider. And now that is passed on to us. We are independent people, independent men. We may be passive. We may be self-reliant. It's still independence. And because of that, and that is the nature of our sin and how it manifests itself in the world. And now we're hiders. And here's the truth of it. We have men in our church who can't worship on Sunday because they're looking at porn all week. Because they're wrapped up in that independence. They're enslaved to it, maybe even addicted to it. And now they're so full of shame, they have to hide. We have men who are hiding from their wives, hiding from their girlfriends, hiding from their kids, hiding from their boss, hiding from mom, grown man, hiding from mom, hiding from dad. That is what we have. We are now a generation of men who hide. And this, this point where they say we are going to choose to try to cover our sin instead of going to God with it, we're going to use a physical solution for our spiritual problems like saying, hey, bro, I'm so sorry, you're out of town. While you're out of town, I went over to water your grass and incidentally, I burned down your house. So I'm very sorry about that. All your pictures are gone. Um, oh, you had a couple kids in there. They're dead. Um, do you have a broom that I could borrow to clean the mess up? That's what this is. That's what that is. Burning down someone's house, killing the people inside, and then asking to borrow a broom to clean it up. The solution does not match the offense. And that is what he's doing here. That's what he's offering when he hides and puts that on. Here's the definition in this context of what a Christian is. A Christian does the opposite of that. A Christian realizes, I have no hope in this world. There are no fig leaves that will cover what I have done. That's what a Christian is. 
He says, I'm going to have to have a spiritual solution to my spiritual problem. Me being a good person is not going to cut it. Me being nice to old ladies, helping them across the street, not going to help. Me giving lots of money, not going to help. Me serving a lot of people is not going to help. Me saying nice things, me getting people to like me. I have to abandon all hope in this world of anything that I can do to solve my problem. I got to put my faith and my trust in the creator who sent his son Jesus to die for my sin and atone for my sin and remove my sin. And so when all my sin was placed on his crucified body, tortured and crucified body on the cross to pay for my sin. That's how I escape the damnation that comes from me, the shame that comes to me, the guilt that comes to me. That's how I escape all that. It is not an independent move. It is a dependent move where that person, that man, abandons all hope in this world and calls out on hope beyond this world. Look at verse 11. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? He's given them an opportunity to confess and own it. They don't do the best job. The man said, it was the woman you gave me that gave me the fruit. I mean, I would expect no less at this point. It's a good move on his part, right? I mean, if you've done all this so far, you got to finish it out, right? This is, this is the woman, obviously. God, she ate first. And then she wasn't wearing any clothes. So what was I going to do, right? I mean, she gives me the fruit. I can't think straight when she looks at me like that. Right? And then, and I don't know if you remember this, God, but then you're the one who gave her to me, so you're half the problem. 13, then the Lord asked the woman, what have you done? She goes, I was deceived. She at least tells the truth. It's true. God judges the serpent. He goes from being the lead animal in the kingdom to being the lowest of all the animals. He gets humbled. He exalted himself, so he gets humbled. The woman who um, seeks control and to get outside of her moment she is put in a situation where she has, to, she has no control and she loses all that. And then one of her gifts to the world is being able to create more humans and that becomes a painful process for her. And then for the man, judgment is placed on him to where he was passive and self-reliant. Now he's got to go to work every day. So not only is the world unfruitful and he's making it fruitful, which would have been an adventure now, it's not just unfruitful, it's actually cursed in its unfruitfulness. So that when you, if you leave it alone for any length of time, it gets way worse. Like if you walk away from it, you come back the next day, there's weeds. Like you try to close the business deal and you think it's all done and tomorrow we're going to sign the papers and something happens in the middle of the night and now they're, they're out on the deal. So six months of work to put this deal together is over. I mean, the ground is cursed and it is work all the time just to get, it's like, 10 pounds of pressure to get two pounds of result. That's the way the world works now. It's not equal. Like you put in this much effort, you get this much result. It's you put in all this effort and you get a little bit of a result because this ground is now cursed. Then in verse 17, the man said, since you listened to the voice, and to the man he said, since you listened to the voice of your wife and you ate the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life will be a struggle to scratch out a living. And it's interesting how many times I've sat in a counseling meeting with a couple. They've been married 10 years or 15 years, whatever. And um, they're in a terrible spot. And he, it, he, she got a list of all the stuff he doesn't do well. And then um, he goes, he'll just, I'll say, what do you say about her list? And then he'll go, I have done everything she has ever asked me to do. 
Now, how much truth is on either side? Forget that part, right, for a minute. But just that's, that's to say, he goes, I've done everything she ever asked me to do. And in his mind, that's a true statement. That's what he's been doing. And then, I, and at first, I never really knew what to do. And so now, I'll just look at him and be like, <clears throat> so how's that going? I was like, you're trying to make someone happy, and she still has a list of things you haven't done. And so the idea that my role as a man, and this became popular in the 80s and 90s among Christian men, is that I'm a servant, and I'm a servant leader, which is true. I mean, all is true, right? And it's my job to serve my wife. And, I serve, and a ha- happy wife, happy life, and all that, right? Like, none of that works. Like, it's, there's some good intent behind it, but none of that really, really works. We need something that, that's more robust, that's more intense than that. He goes, but this ground is cursed because of you. So we have gone from just being unfruitful to now being cursed. And so that's going to create more work. So these are our grandparents. This is the spiritual genetics that I have. These are the spiritual genetics that you have. This is where we come from. And it's helpful to know where we come from. And we got to work against it. And there's a gospel and a hope and a redemption that goes beyond it. Let me give you three goals that we have for this series over the next few weeks. Things that we want to accomplish, things we want to do. The first one is this. We want to address the past. We want to take a few moments and address the past. And for some of you, you're, you're anxious to do that. And for others, you um, are not sure the value of, of that. And I want to ask you to suspend judgment and give it some time. Just give it a minute. We're going to take a look at the past and see how you have been shaped. Some of the deficits, some of the losses, some of the wounds that you may have received in the past. They do shape the lens through which you look at the world. They do have an impact. They do not define you, but they do shape you. They do have an impact on you. A number of years ago, I was meeting with a guy who came to my office. <clears throat> He's a tender soul, a talented athlete, a grown man. He had three kids. Sat down in front of me, and within five minutes, he was crying, reduced to tears. He was in a very difficult place. His family, was, his wife was not happy with him. He, his kids were pulling away. He felt it. He felt dis, dis, dislocated from his family. He felt disengaged from work. A lot of things not going well. And I said, well, tell me about your life. So he started telling me about his, his dad was a preacher. Um, he started telling me a story about how his dad was always at everybody else's function. He'd go see this boy um, get his Eagle Scout award, or he'd go with his family to see this kid playing a football game. He goes, and my dad never came to any of my games. He didn't come to my baseball game, didn't come to my basketball games. He, he was just real wounded by the fact that his dad was not engaged in his life and was so busy working at his job, engaging everybody else's life. It just left a big mark, it left a, a wound, it left a deficit on him, and he felt, um, he was wounded by it, right? It's reduced to tears. And um, so we kept talking. And so, and then later on, he's talking about his wife's frustrated because he's not spending enough time at home. I said, well, tell me about your work schedule. So it's a daily work schedule. I was like, so we got to work during the day. I was like, so what's it like at night? He goes, well, I mean, she says I'm out too many nights. I was like, what are you out doing at night? He goes, I play, I'm on a softball team. He goes, actually, I'm on three softball teams. And I was like, well, okay, are you a good softball player? (laughs) He goes, yeah, I'm really good. And I was like, he goes, in baseball, I was really good. I was going to play college baseball and had an injury and whatever, that kind of thing. I was like, so you're, how many nights a week do you have to be out to play on three softball teams? He goes, well, three teams, three nights. I said, you were out three nights last week playing softball? He goes, yeah. Hit a home run, did this, blah, blah, whatever. And I said, 
Do you see any irony in what we're talking about? He goes, what are you talking about? I was like, irony. Irony is one of those things. <laughs> he goes, no, I know what irony is. And um, I said, well, you were wounded. It's my word, not your word. You didn't say it like that. But you were wounded by your dad because he worked all the time and he was out performing in his job, trying to earn approval from other people, being at other games and other events and not at yours. And now you are out playing softball, still trying to prove that you're a great athlete at 35 years old. You're trying to prove that you're a big deal in the athletic world. And if you know, for 35-year-olds, I mean, there's Tom Brady and then there's everybody else, right? There are no 35-year-old athletes anymore. We're done. I was like, so you're still out trying to prove that you're a great athlete and you're wounding your children the way that you got wounded. I was like, you would think that if anybody on the earth would be sensitive to not being out of the house at night and wounding his children by not being available and neglecting them, that that would be you, that you would be sensitive to that. And he looked at me with this blank stare and he goes, never thought of it. I was like, that never occurred to you. He goes, never. I never connected the dots to all that. Right? So lost in his situation just completely unaware of what he's doing. And that's what, that's what wounds or deficits do. They give you blind spots. They make you unaware. They, they um, help you miss big parts of your life and how he's actually, he was kind of cursed, not in the magical sense, right? But he was cursed by his dad and unknowingly, he's passing the curse along. Which, I know the guy to this day, he's not part of our church, lives in another place. He's fixed that as much as he could. I see him with his kids from time to time. He's in good fellowship with his kids. It's really cool. So we're going to look at the past. We're going to address that. The second idea, we're going to define um, what it could be to be a man in this moment. A redeemed version of masculinity. Here's what we want to say. Key word, responsible. We want to be responsible for the people and the situations that God brings into his life. This is what we're looking for. Adam was responsible for Eve in that moment. And he was really responsible when that snake started talking. But he stepped back. He was supposed to step forward. He's supposed to lean in and he leaned back. Not responsible. When sin and shame hit, he's responsible in that moment. She wasn't even created when these things were told to him. He was working in the garden before she ever existed. All that comes late in the game. She's not, she, he's responsible because he was created first, not because he's better. He's not more talented. He's not smarter. He's not more gifted. He's not built a certain way. It's not, none of that. It's just, it's how God ordained the situation. He was created first. He has this responsibility. So to be responsible for the people and situations that God brings into our life. And we're going to explore what some of those are. But this is important for us. God is coming for me. He is not coming to hold my kids accountable for how our family went. He is not, in the grandest sense, he's not coming for Vicky. He's coming for me. He wants to know why I didn't engage in that situation. And this two-step that we step back and then a woman who craves control anyway naturally wants to step forward and fill the void 
We got to work on that. And some of us have strong leadership personalities, but half of us in the room, our wives are better natural leaders than we are. And that's part of the equation too. Is that in that situation, by common agreement, we're going to figure out how we take responsibility for things that are ours. And the women in our lives, let us take responsibility for those things and let us fulfill what God has given us to do. And it is a mutual agreement that we have to come to because we have work to do with the people in our lives to make sure that we're taking responsibility. Because here's the, here's the other thing that's complicated in our culture now. It may not be your fault what has happened, but it is my responsibility. Those are two separate things. We call men to handle things sometimes. Like, hey, man, that's not my fault. Like, whoa, I'm sorry. We weren't talking about guilt. No one was talking, no one said anything about fault or guilt. We're not talking about guilt. We're not talking about your fault. We're just talking about your responsibility. Their fault, your responsibility. It's an incredible thing. It's an incredible opportunity that God's given us. So those, those are two separate things. We'll get into it more. We want to, with this idea, be responsible for, we, want, we think it looks like this. Instead of being passive, we want to lean in and move towards. So this is the language you'll hear. Responsible for, moves towards, and depends on. Instead of being self-reliant, we depend on. These two things are not in competition with each other, although people want to make them so. When we talk about what it means to be responsible for, we are leaning in and moving towards, and at the same time, we're being responsible for God. Moving into that conversation with the woman and the snake is not the opposite of trusting and depending on God. In fact, it would be trusting God to move into a situation that you don't know what to do or how to handle it. That is trusting God. So for him to depend on God, he needed to move. Movement is not the opposite of depending on God. And when I'm thinking about moving, I am filling the gap. I'm leaning in. And I'm not leaning into situations that I feel comfortable with. I'm also leaning into situations that I do not feel comfortable with. The first time I went through men's roundtable, it got so clear to me, things that, that I was missing. And um, I was, we were living over by Furman. And my oldest was this big, somewhere in here. And she and I, I was coming out of the bedroom, and we had this hallway that ran to our bedroom, and right there was a bathroom. And I saw Madison and Vicky in a conflict, two strong-willed women. And they were in some kind of conflict over something. And I heard about 20% of it. And I was like, today's the day I moved towards and I jumped in and said, you're doing this, and you're doing this. Da -da 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 -da. Now there's peace. Be gone. And I divided them up. And then a few minutes later, my wife came in. She goes, could you tell me what that was, what just happened? I was like, let me tell you something. That is me not being passive. Get used to it. <laughs> and I was, I was being serious. I was like, hey, I'm, no, I'm trying to help. Y'all were in a conflict. That's not good for a home. So I just, I worked it out. I helped it. And she goes, hey, that you, you didn't even hear what was going on. It really wasn't a conflict and it was whatever. And you didn't really know and you didn't really listen. And I got, and here's the thing, I don't really need you. Go, I got that. She's like six. It's fine. I got it. I know what I'm doing. And I said, okay. I said, here you. Okay. So here's the thing. 
I said, let's just say, for real, I did not handle that situation well. But let me say this. Me not being involved, that is not an option anymore. Because something about all this ain't right, and I am going to be involved. And I apologize that I didn't listen, and I didn't know what was really going on, and I gave the wrong action steps on that, but I am going to be involved. And I could just see her like, oh my goodness, what are we doing? But that's right. I mean, that's what it is. That's part of it. That's what we're doing. We're learning how, and everybody has to do it differently because everybody's personality is different. Everybody's home is different. Everybody's got to do it different. What does it mean to deal with this tension, to deal with this conflict? And for some of you, you want to go get some. And for others of you, you don't want that tension, that conflict in your life. You're going to have to learn how to depend on God for different things. I have to depend on God for restraint and caution and learning and being insightful. Some of you just have to depend on God for courage to go get some and to go deal with it. We're learning how to depend on. I'm not everyone's savior. I can't solve every single problem. I can't live in fear. I got to have courage. I got to move forward. I learned a couple summers ago, when you get to be my age, and you've been in the same spot for a long time, people come to you for a lot of things. And I had two things going on in my world that I could not control throughout that summer, and it was a miserable experience. And through the summer, by the time I got into late August, God showed me, he goes, Matt, your biggest problem is, is that you have forgotten that you are a child is that as much as you take care of your family and you take care of people in your job, as much as that is what your life has become, is that you people come to you because they want things and they need things and you take care of them, I take care of you and you have forgotten that. And he put me in two situations that I could not fix. I could not whip into shape. I could not resolve it for about eight to 10 weeks. And he goes, you will wait on me and I will resolve this when I am ready and you are going to be reminded that you are my child and that I take care of you and that is a humility issue. And I have forgotten all of that, that I am still just a child who has to depend on and who has to trust in him. And so we're going to depend on him. And here's the thing. This is a big thing in our church. When you, when your daughter tells you that her best friend is sneaking out at night and going out with boys and drinking and you find out about that from your daughter because her best friend. And then you're like, well, I can't tell my daughter's friend's parents because this was told in confidentiality. And I can't do that. I can't break. The, and it's going to hurt their relationship. Here's the thing. Jesus said, do to other people what you would want done to you. Would you want to know that your daughter is sneaking out, sleeping with her boyfriend and drinking all weekend? Would you want to know that? Yes, you would want to know that. So you are going to your daughter's best friend's parents, and you are going to tell them because you're going to depend on God for what? For the consequences. You got to trust them. You got to do the right thing. That's what, when we talk about masculinity, that's what we're talking about is that I'm going to move and I'm going to do the right thing even though I can't control the outcomes. I can't control the consequences. I do the right thing I move, I lean in, I do the right thing, and I trust God with the consequences because that's what God's calling people to do. That's who's calling us to be. And the third thing, we're going to envision a masculinity for the future that honors God. What does God want for your life? What does it mean for you to be able to give your life away, to be a life giver? If Jesus sacrificed himself for you, what does it mean for you to sacrifice yourself for others and bless those? 
What does it mean for you to not become a needy man that needs everybody to prop you up? And here's what I would say. Now's the time to make the changes so that you can experience the fruitfulness over the next decade. Beyond that, who knows? But for the next decade, you get a chance to experience, cultivate this kind of fruitfulness. And it's for real. Because I was visiting my parents. They lived in New Zion, South Carolina at the time. My dad was a Methodist minister. And um, <clears throat> I was driving back from seeing them one day. And I was listening to Robert Lewis, who wrote the original material for this. It was called Men's Fraternity at the time. And um, I was driving through a cotton field outside of Sumter, South Carolina. And he was bearing down on some of these issues. And it was getting clear to me what I had been thinking masculinity was and what it, then what it really was. And I finally just had to pull over on the side of the road. And I can remember the white tops of those fields going in both directions. And I'm all alone. There ain't nobody on any of these roads. And I am sitting there looking at that field and I was thinking, is this for real? Whether I am athletic or artsy, whatever, that is no longer the issue. What does it mean to have this kind of vision for masculinity. And I began, the tumblers began to come into place of how this was going to change everything for me and for the five other men that summer who were doing men's roundtable. There was just a handful of us. We were just doing it to go, okay, is this even for real? And it began to get clear to me where all this was going to go. And here's the thing, now I get to look back after two decades and see the fruit from it. I want to encourage you. This is a unique opportunity and a unique season to be able to grab a few ideas and implement them in your life. All right, so let me pray for us. Father, we ask <clears throat> that you would give us clarity, that you would give us a path to move forward, that you would intentionally not give us everything that we want, that you would not give us the end, that you would not give us how it's all going to work out, that you would help us to depend on you, walk by faith, taking one step at a time, uh, just as you direct. And so I pray that you would open our eyes to be able to see clearly uh, the work you want to do, uh, what you have for us in this moment, how you want us to respond. And so would we not worry about things that are weeks away or months away or years away? Would we do the work that is right in front of us? Would you give us clarity around it? Would you help us do it? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.